Welcome to Akana Class, a program dedicated to exploring the mindset of innovators. Today I'm interviewing Greg Gallant, who Business Week calls one of the best young tech entrepreneurs of 2010. Greg is the CEO and co-founder of Muckrack, a software platform for journalism and media. The Next Web has called Muckrack one of the most useful inventions ever for journalism. Greg is also the co-founder an executive producer of The Shorties, an award program honoring the best of social media with past recipients including Mike Bloomberg, Ricky Gervais, Cory Booker, and Sesame Street, to name a few. Greg, welcome to Akana Class. Thanks for having me on. So, um, as a lifelong entrepreneur, tell us what led up to your first entrepreneurial venture at the young age of 14. So I got on the internet really early by way of Prodigy, which is one of the early uh, ISPs like AOL, where you dial in and be able to connect with people. I remember Prodigy gave everybody a little bit of web space. I think it was a megabyte at the time, which seemed like a lot. And I decided to just try putting up my own website. And after I did, I was kind of uh, thrilled with that idea that I could build something and other people around the world could see it. So I thought I could kind of challenge myself to make more websites and make some money at the time by starting a company to build websites for other businesses, which mm. I, I did and had customers ranging from a chain of local newspapers to a French philosopher to a clinical labels company. <laughs> what kind of a uh, website does a philosopher need? Uh, this is actually uh, BHL. He's one of the, the biggest philosophers in France. Here in America, it's hard to make a living as a uh, contemporary philosopher, but in France, you can do quite well. This guy uh -huh. lives in a castle and married to a supermodel. So if you're <laughs> going to be a philosopher, much better to uh, happen yeah. to be a French philosopher. That defies the stereotypes. Um, <laughs> so was there any skepticism from these companies about your age? Oh, a lot when I was, um, well, there was a lot of skepticism less about my age, more about just the idea of needing a website. So I didn't have to convince uh -huh. people like, it wasn't a sale like, of course you need a website, here's why you should choose me. Right. It was, this is what a website is and your company should have one. And most businesses were skeptical they needed a website back then. Wow. But once I convinced them they, they need a website, it actually worked well being younger because websites hadn't been around that long. So no one could make the argument they'd been building websites for years, a decade, et cetera. So while you wouldn't want to choose an accountant who has one year experience, or you wouldn't want to choose a lawyer with a year experience. <laughs> Let alone a 14-year-old accountant. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and those, you know, those professions have been around for longer. So you expect to be able to find an accountant with 20 years experience. It was almost like back then, if you you know, if you claim to have 10 years experience building websites, you were lying because they didn't exist. And <laughs> it gave me as an upstart a big edge because people were willing to take a flyer working with uh, someone younger on their website because they knew that uh, you had more credibility kind of being in that world and being as experienced as you could be. Mm -hmm. So very early interest in tech and coming of age at a really key time, right? With the the web just starting. Um, what other social and environmental factors, if any, um, do you think supported your um, entrepreneurial activity from such a young age? I think there, there's an element. I always just love starting things. Oh. I was definitely the kid 
always doing the lemonade stand, mm -hmm. elements like that on the block. Uh, my parents were very supportive too, which helped a lot. And uh, some of it too, I think just being a, a bored kid growing up in the uh, suburbs helped too back then. If you didn't have a car, there wasn't too much you could do. So I had lots of time on my hands just to, to delve into it. But I, I just found that ability to create, to work mm -hmm. with businesses and solve their problem. That was really kind of thrilling and created a lot of satisfaction. Um, and I happen to know personally, uh, you're very interested in philosophy. How would you say the study of philosophy has impacted your career trajectory? Yeah, it's funny. So I went to school originally intent on studying business. And then I took a few. Well, first I took my intro to philosophy course and loved it. Then I took a few business courses and I felt like it wasn't having done a business. I felt like it wasn't terribly relevant, at least not for undergrad business. Uh, but then in the philosophy department, I liked that they were honest. First of all, no one in the philosophy department was pitching it like the business school of saying like, oh, this is going to be super useful in your career. Uh, and, and on the other hand, I found it very intellectually stimulating. I like the uh, talking about ideas and writing and all that. But funny enough, I've actually found that philosophy has been extremely useful in my career and it continues to get more useful as we grow. Because one of the biggest jobs of an entrepreneur is to kind of see the world, see the market, see cultural trends, mm -hmm. which is all messy, and then figure out from it, like, what's a premise? Where can you, as a new business, uh, find your place in that and make it better? In a way, that's what you're doing in philosophy, too. Uh, any philosopher, they kind of look at the world, look at humanity, look at ethics, which is all messy and could be meaningless. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, then they figure out some way to construct a narrative around it and explain it. So it's been useful both in that uh, developing clear ideas, even more important, communicating ideas clearly. And that matters at the beginning a lot because you have to communicate the idea to the customers, to the market, to the press. Oftentimes before you have a product you can show, and now that we're bigger, I find it's been very valuable because a lot of, almost all of my job now is just communicating ideas, not only to our customers, but to our team. And I can't, can't really do any of the work myself. I have to make sure our team's working on the right stuff. So kind of having that uh, experience communicating ideas has been very useful to me. Is there any school of philosophy that's been more influential for you than others? You know, I always like kind of the moral and political philosophers. More recently, I've been getting a lot into the uh, Stoic philosophers, which was one of the Hellenistic schools. So in Greece and Rome back then, it, it's funny how much philosophy's changed right now. When you hear philosophy, you think about this kind of existential, like, do we exist? How do we know we exist? But in Greece and Rome, there were these uh, philosophical schools. There was the cynics, with cynicism, uh, Epicureanism, with Epicurus, of course, he started it, and then the Stoics, but they were all these kind of philosophies of life where they were actually meant to answer questions on how you live your life. So studying philosophy wasn't this kind of in the clouds activity. It was actually applied. thinking about, yeah, applied, how should you live, what's the right thing to do. Very interesting. Um, now, shifting gears a little, before you became an entrepreneur, uh, you did a brief stint as an employee. Um, 
Talk to us about your experiences at CNN as an associate producer uh, and then in venture capital and how those experiences contributed to your transition to full-time entrepreneurship. Sure. So when I was in college, I spent one firm, or sorry, one summer the year before graduating working at a venture capital firm, helping them to uh, source deals and find things to invest in. And then as I was finishing up college, I worked at as an associate producer at CNN.com uh, down in Atlanta. And it was actually from uh, commuting from the university I went to, to CNN's headquarters. I kept getting stuck in Atlanta traffic and I hated Atlanta radio. So I was thinking like, wouldn't it be great if there was something else I could listen to in the car? Uh -huh. This was 2005, 2004, 2005, just when the iPod had come out. Wow. They had this idea like, oh, what if I could get the MP3s from CNN's uh, news and put that on my iPod? I started doing some research and the term podcasting, it was maybe mentioned once or twice back then. People called it RSS feeds with enclosures. Mm. Not quite as catchy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I fell in love with this idea that I could get uh, new content, uh -huh. new spoken word content automatically on my iPod. I was researching it. And I tried pitching to CNN the idea of launching a podcast back then. And they showed me like their list of changes they wanted to make to their website that was already scheduled out a year. I thought it was extremely well-run business, but I just realized like maybe this isn't the place for me because I want to just be launching stuff fast. So when I graduated... I decided I just wanted to start a podcast to see what that was all about. Because it felt like it felt like when I was 14 and like the web just came out. Like I'm like, this is something new and exciting and I want to be a part of it. I was trying to think of a good topic for a podcast. And back then, it's so much different now, but back then there was almost no information on the web about how entrepreneurs really started companies. All you could find were like these 500 word stories where it'd say Joe started a company and then next thing you know, it's worth a billion dollars. And I would always be like, wait, 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 what they, yeah. there's one sentence in between those two. And what did they really do to go from nothing to, uh -huh. uh, to being a large company? Mm -hmm. So I had this idea, like, what if I just did mm -hmm. interviews with entrepreneurs about how they started their business, but actually kind of went into detail with them and, and really just asked them all the questions that I wanted to know as an entrepreneur. And even seen from my time in venture capital, where we were looking mm -hmm. to invest in companies that most entrepreneurs back then, and again, I think this has changed a lot now, but they'd be working on their own business, but they weren't necessarily in touch with any other entrepreneurs, particularly if they weren't in Silicon Valley, which I wasn't. So I started this podcast in 2005. I think, it, I think it's fair to say it's the first, it might've been the first podcast about entrepreneurship. Uh, definitely the first interview podcast about entrepreneurship. Venture Voice. Venture Voice, yeah. And I remember the first person I pitched on being on it was the, uh, CEO of a company called Feedburner, this guy, Dick Costello, who later became the CEO of Twitter and took Twitter public. I remember I called up Feedburner's main phone number. I said, this is Greg Gallant. Who can I speak to about setting up an interview with your CEO? Meanwhile, if you looked at my website, you know, the Venture Voice was just a logo. Wow. There's no credibility to it. <laughs> and then on the and other how end of, old are you now? 21? Uh, yeah, this would have been, I guess, probably 21, 22, uh -huh. however old I was when I graduated. Uh-huh. And on the other end of the line, he says, this is Dick, I'm the CEO. I'm like, oh, hey, uh, want to come on my podcast? He's like, yeah, sure. Um, you can give me a call. Uh, you can give me a call Monday and uh, you know, happy to do your podcast, but one condition. 
said, yeah, sure, what's that? He's like, you've got to call me on my cell phone. And I didn't really know anything about production then, but I'd read some articles online and they all said back at the time, like never interview somebody on their cell phone because the sound quality sucks. Right. Uh, that might have changed now, but back then the sound was definitely bad. I figured I got nothing to lose. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll call your cell phone, but do you mind if I ask why? It's like, yeah, we only have one line in our office here. So if I'm talking to you on this podcast, customers won't be able to get through. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So I had, I had him on, then I had uh, Reed Hoffman on, the founder of LinkedIn, back when LinkedIn was about a 30-employee company, Very the founder of Yelp, and then uh, I got dozens of other entrepreneurs, and I was able to get people of bigger stature at the time, too. So uh, founder of Brooklyn Brewery, founder of Vanguard Group, and a whole <laughs> bunch of others. Very exciting. And you know, you, you said a large part of why you did it is the opportunity to ask questions you wanted the answers to. How did they do it? Did you notice um, any commonalities across the interviews in terms of personality traits or mindset? It's funny. I, I thought going in that there'd be a lot more consistency than there was. Like I was thinking, oh, maybe entrepreneurs need to be introverts or extroverts. Maybe you have to be a wonderful salesman. And what I found was interviewing them, you know, some of them were gregarious and charming, could go on forever. Others were actually kind of awkward and uh, not terribly articulate, especially back then. It's this, again, has changed a lot. Now entrepreneurs, now it's cool to be an entrepreneur. Yes, they're stars, they get sure. media trained, so even if they're not by nature that outgoing, by the time they're interviewed, they, they're probably decent at it. But back then, Nobody was recording them. So a lot of them weren't media trained and even very successful entrepreneurs might not be good in front of the press. So anyhow, I, I found uh, that th there wasn't a lot of consistency with anything except a tremendous amount of resiliency. And this is one thing that was really cool about the hour long format is every entrepreneur has edited versions of their origin story, myself included, where if I sit down with somebody at a bar and I have 30 seconds to tell them my story, I edit out all the failures along the way. And if I have a longer time, yeah, there's of course mm -hmm. stuff that didn't work that I'm not, uh, mm -hmm. not gonna go into in a short amount of time, but in a longer amount of time, mm -hmm. I hear it. And so when I was doing this podcast, I found out that uh, just about everyone had had businesses that have totally flopped or had mm -hmm. moments where they can't make payroll or lose a big customer, or just have these you know, reversals that seem um, devastating. And I think that can be really hard for entrepreneurs because often they only hear the rosy story. Yeah. So then when they have that devastating moment, not only is it devastating, but they think of all their heroes and like, oh, nothing, they never screwed up this much. But it turns out pretty much all of them did. So what, the only thing I thought was consistent among all the entrepreneurs that I've talked to is that they're resilient. Yeah, and this is before, um, I guess, the co coherent Silicon Valley, um, you know, mindset or culture had really fully formed because now we have the culture of failure, there are failure conferences, failure mm. is celebrated, um, business leaders speak very openly about their failure. How has failure contributed to your growth as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's been tremendous. I've had uh, many businesses that didn't work. Actually, alongside the podcast that I started, I then had the idea to launch a podcast advertising network an ad serving platform. So I was thinking all these podcasts are coming out. 
um, wouldn't it be great if there were a way to just get ads for podcasts and both had an ad network mm -hmm. and then could also serve the ads dynamic into the audio? So I started a company doing that. And uh, in retrospect, it's clear, although I had no idea at the time, that it was about 10 years too early to market. So companies have done that now that are very successful, but everyone who started a company back then, uh, it didn't work out for. And I was basically you know, pounding my head against the wall for over a year trying to sign up companies. And we got, we got customers like Business Week and The Street, and we got some big names in it, Focus Features. But it was always small, deals and the big audience and, and uh, money never flowed into podcasting for another really five or 10 years since then. So on one hand, it was like, you know, a painful experience of being way too early to market. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I learned a tremendous amount from it. And there were lots of things that I did with that business that I then uh, applied to later businesses when my timing was right. And it's also tricky because to some degree, you, uh, you never know. So, I mean, there were a lot of smart people, very experienced entrepreneurs who entered the podcasting world in 2005. Actually, mm -hmm. one of the guys I had on my podcast was Ev Williams, who started a company called Odeo that itself was a podcasting company and directory. Odeo didn't work out. He pivoted into their side project, Twitter. Uh -huh. And then that led to Twitter, which actually is what led mm -hmm. me into further ventures. But... You know, both uh, and Ev had previously started Blogger, mm -hmm. which was one of the first blogging platforms he sold to Google. So you look at, um, you know, even Evan Williams, who's an amazing entrepreneur, started, you know, one multi-billion-dollar company, and then you know Blogger, and then since Medium, which are also hugely successful top 100 websites. And so even you know even he'll make a timing mistake. Mm -hmm. Because, or I shouldn't even say mistake, but you know, probably bad bets a better way to phrase it. But there's that element where you never know the future. Uh, mm -hmm. So you know, even the best entrepreneur with the best business plan can still be wrong. But I think that's where it comes to resiliency, and, and that's where it also comes to. I've always tried to figure out how to launch businesses in the most capital efficient way possible, mm -hmm. with the idea that like if it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't mean bankruptcy and you know, devastation. It just means like, okay, let's try something new. Well, that kind of segues to the next question I had for you. Given the um, inherently risky nature of entrepreneurial activity, what is your risk management strategy? Yeah, I'm always looking at ways to mitigate risk. And I think one re really important thing is to think carefully about the worst case scenario and then uh, also mitigate for it. And that can be that can be powerful, not only in terms of avoiding risk, but in being able to take risks. Because a lot of times, two people could do the same thing, and one of them could um, do it in a way where they're taking a huge risk, another one could take a small risk. So for example, when we launched the Shorty Awards, we uh, put up the website allowing anyone to vote with a tweet. It was about a $30, um, $30 a month hosting plan. We had mm -hmm. to spend $8 buying the domain name, shortyawards.com, which mm -hmm. was the entirety of our marketing budget. But we hadn't yet committed to a venue. We hadn't committed. We didn't promise people that there'd even be an event. Mm -hmm. We just said, hey, it's an award show. You could vote for people on the web. Uh, so it wasn't like we were making a false promise. It was just like, right. you'll vote, they'll get online recognition. So, and of course, in, in our case, we were fortunate. Our timing was perfect in retrospect. We were the first to build a, a system where people could vote with a tweet. 
So it went viral within 24 hours, and then very quickly I had the confidence that we could pull off the event. But that's an example where it ended up working, and we ended up putting on an event that cost a good amount of money and got sponsors to cover it and right. made a profit. But the worst case scenario of the Shorty Awards was nobody would care about the website, and we would have been out uh, $8 for domain name, $30 a month for hosting, and two weekends of our time building the website. Basically less than $100 in two yeah, weeks exactly. of your time. Okay, yeah. And you know, it's not, mm -hmm. only, um, not only on the web, uh, of course, I mean, this is one of the great things about the web is that your, your risk can be so low because if you know how to build websites on your own um, and know how to build product, that's really your only cost nowadays, especially with cloud, uh, cloud storage. But I've seen people apply it in, even in other areas, like Danny Myers, the restaurateur behind yes. uh, Union Square Cafe and mm -hmm. later started Shake Shack. Uh, in his book, he talks a lot about how whenever he would negotiate a lease for a restaurant, he would always negotiate a way to get out of the lease should the restaurant not work. Mm -hmm. And most of his restaurants worked. I think it was only his maybe fifth restaurant mm -hmm. that he had to close down. But looking at how thoughtful that was, where you know they happened to have worked, but it could have been that he opened up in a neighborhood that then went downhill. There are so many things outside mm -hmm. of your control that can blow you up, and he structured it so that he could afford to fail and still go on, and, and the right. risk wasn't as big as it could have been. He really minimized the downside, avoided bankruptcy, set himself up to take the failure, learn from it, and carry it forward into a new venture. That's right. So I think whereas people think like entrepreneurs are risk takers is kind of the classic thing. Mm -hmm. They are, but I think entrepreneurs are really risk mitigators and managers where mm -hmm. they take risks, but they can only take the risk because they're doing the work to, to mitigate it and, uh, and you know, be smart about when to take the risk if they want to actually stay entrepreneurs for a long time. Richard Branson's another great example where uh, the Virgin Group has been around for a long time, one yes. of the most iconic brands out there. But every venture of Virgin is structured as its own company so that should any of them not work, and many of them haven't worked, uh, it doesn't take down his whole enterprise. You know, most recently, Virgin America didn't work out. And I mean, he wrote and he cried about it and it was, it was painful, but the rest of his Virgin still exists. Virgin Atlantic, Virgin Galactic, all these mm -hmm. other great companies are still up and running and Richard Branson's still in business. Very strategic, calculated risks. Mm. Um, let's talk about the shorties. So what led up to the creation of the shorties? Yeah, so it's funny enough from doing that podcast and from, uh -huh. uh, you know, away from failing and podcasting, but being in that podcast world early on, uh, that's what led me to get onto Twitter super early because I was following Ev's work. So I got at Gregory on Twitter just by being the first person to sign up to Twitter and trying to get at Gregory. I didn't even try getting a, calling it a favor. Mm -hmm. And so I was on Twitter in those early days and I got on back in 2006. Twitter took a couple of years before it really got popular. And then by 2008, I saw it had kind of hit this critical mass of interest, of popularity. Uh, but and, and that people were writing really interesting stuff on Twitter, but there was no way to know if I'm interested in sports or or news, who should I follow? So I had this idea along with my co-founder that we could uh, build a website where anyone could just vote with a tweet for who they thought was the best on Twitter by that topic. And now of course it's commonplace, you know, you vote for anything on the web, they tell you share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook. 
No one had ever done that up until that point. So we built the first system that let you vote with a tweet, launched it, and again, of anything I'd ever launched, I thought the Shorty Awards had the least potential to be an ongoing business. I thought this mm -hmm. was just kind of for fun. Ironic. And within those first 24 hours, it became the top trending term on Twitter. We got coverage from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, uh, all wrote about us, with us without us even pitching them on it. And so it was tremendous interest. And then I announced, okay, we'll do the show now in two months after it got popular. And then it was just a mad scramble. So I was able to get uh, Pepsi and the Knight Foundation mm -hmm. to back it as our first sponsors. We flew in winners from around the world. We did the first award ceremony at a very cool venue in uh, Dumbo, Brooklyn, back when uh, Dumbo was just an up and coming neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it was this huge hit and uh, you know, really blew me away. And in a way, I both, uh, it was the opposite experience that I'd had with my uh, podcast advertising network, where with that, it was a long, slog, nobody cared, to launching something else that I thought was a much worse idea uh, on paper, but then ended up uh, yeah, exceeding that. But it was all those skills that I'd honed running the other businesses that I was able to deploy in those two months to, to rapidly pull this thing together as a business, where had, had the Shorty Awards been my first business, I don't think I could have executed like I did in two months. And I'm also um, sitting here thinking about the importance of timing and how when we compare launching the podcast to launching the podcast ad company to the shorties, timing was right. Mm. Um, so this year, uh, Best in Music, interestingly, was won by a K-pop band, Blackpink. Uh, for subscribers who are not familiar with that musical genre, could you describe it? It's actually quite interesting. Yeah, it's been fascinating. I should say, actually, the, the shorties have evolved since that first year where we now award. It's all of social media, so it's also what they're posting to Instagram, to YouTube, mm -hmm. as well as Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, etc. But K-pop is um, th this kind of movement out of Korea where there are these Korean, uh, Korean bands that have taken off internationally and their fans, and of course, I mean, they're huge in Korea, but they're huge outside of Korea. But what really struck us was that they're, they're particularly good at using social media to get their message out. But mm -hmm. even more than that is that their fans are particularly active on social media. So they blow away, you know, most of the big pop stars we have in America in terms of like their social media. The size of their following. following. Yeah, the size millions. of it. And more than the, fo the size, it's how emphatic the followers are. So it's both they have a really big following, but then mm -hmm. also those followers are much more engaged. And it's sort of an interesting, I've looked at a little bit of it, uh, interesting mix of animation and reality sort of mixed together. Yeah, that's right. They're kind of very inventive about how they use media in a way. Uh, I think they're, they're, they're good inspiration, I think, for American artists now. Um, how would you like to see the shorties evolve over the next five years? Yeah, what we see is that uh, you know the, the creativity that happens on online platforms like YouTube mm -hmm. and Instagram influence culture as much as movies and other, other big platforms. And that there are a lot of amazing creators on these platforms that, um, that really connect with their audiences and have really powerful, authentic messages. So we've already built the biggest award show honoring social media, and now we honor all kinds of digital media. 
But what our ambition is to make the shorties as big as the Oscars mm -hmm. or Golden Globes or any other major award show, uh, because we, we see you know the, these really powerful content creators and their fans really care. Often they're reaching more bigger audiences than a lot of TV shows. Uh, and, and our challenge is that even though the Shorty Awards are already uh, in their 11th year, we're still a baby in the award show business. Oscars have been around for over 80 yeah. years. And there's such a degree where it takes a while to build them because they only come around once a year. There's also this element, too, where they have to be around for a long time before, you know, to build credibility. Because to us now, the Oscars are as credible as can be. And they all started before any of us were born. But I can only imagine in the second year of the Oscars, people are like, what is this thing? And what are these talking pictures? So, you know, we're, we're excited to build into that. The other element that's fun about the shorties is that whereas other award shows, the mediums they honor don't change that much. You know, like the Oscars haven't had to really change since they added sound to movies. Uh, for the shorties, we, these platforms are changing all the time. Vine starts, Vine dies, mm -hmm. Instagram adds stories, TikTok takes off. So we're always changing up the Shorty Awards to stay relevant. And what do you think the next hot social media platform is looking ahead? I wish I knew, but I think you <laughs> know, since TikTok is uh, TikTok? continuing to grow and be really powerful with that demographic. And I mean, I think the main lesson I learned is that it's never going to be what you predict because everyone sees the current trends. So right now, for example, it's all about stories. Yeah. So it's tempting to make a prediction like, uh, oh, somebody else will start a new social network that'll be even better for stories. And I don't think that's how it's going to work because, you know, the, the current platforms that are doing stories have really, uh, really done that. And it's hard to displace an incumbent by just optimizing something. So I think whatever comes next, it'll be totally out left field and something that seems completely new innovation rather than yeah, completely improving new. Instagram stories. That's right. And I'm sure it'll be derided also because you think about all the, everything mm -hmm. we're using now. When Twitter first came out, everyone was like, oh, who wants to read what someone has for lunch? And what could you say in 140 characters? <laughs> uh, Facebook just seemed like the silly thing for college students. Yeah. YouTube also, you know, it's just, oh, kids in their bedrooms with webcams. <laughs> right. uh, Snapchat, you know, is, of course, thought of only for sexting. And they, they come up with a story feature uh -huh. that is now uh, the most popular, you know, the, the fastest growing feature uh, across many social networks. So. So I'm sure whatever is the next big thing, everyone will think is really stupid. Initially. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so the other business um, of yours is Muckrack, and um, that was founded subsequent to the Shorties. What led up to the creation of that? Yeah, so when we um, launched, the, uh, launched the Shorties, uh, one thing that really struck me was how much the press cared about it. Because from launching other businesses that I'd done, I, I knew getting the press to write about something, something new is really hard. You have to pitch them and they're skeptical and it takes months and months and months. Whereas with the shorties, just within 24 hours of launching it, we had New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC all reach out to us. I remember the Wall Street Journal reporter even came out to Brooklyn to meet me to interview me. And back then, nobody wanted to go to Brooklyn for business. So <laughs> I was like, what's happening here? Yeah. So I, um, I, I saw you know, mm -hmm. a few months after the shorties, and I saw this trend. 
like, all right, let's launch a site where you can just see all the journalists on social media and see what they're writing about. And launched that as Muckrack. And again, first version, we built it in two weeks, uh, mm -hmm. very minimal investment and no business model. And my philosophy is like, if you can launch a site cheap enough, like you can figure out the business model later. If it's just gonna cost you millions of dollars to build the thing, then you better have a business model. And that defies a lot of conventional wisdom. Yeah, exactly. You still go to business school or read an old business book and they say you gotta have your 80 page business plan. It would have taken me more time. Before you do time. anything, yeah. That's right. It would have taken me more time to write the 80 page business plan than it did to launch the uh, Right. The and then site. the timing would be off. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So so built it in two two week two weeks and launched my crack and we ran it for uh, a couple of years on the side of the Shorty Awards. And over those two years, I mm -hmm. uh, tried a few other ideas. But over those two years, Twitter got a lot more popular with journalists. We had over 10,000 requests to get listed on Muckrack. Amazing. All because Muckrack was like kind of the watering mm -hmm. hole for journalists to find each other. And I kept running into PR people. You know, this is New York, so there are a lot of PR people mm -hmm. out there. And they would all tell me like, oh yeah, I love Muckrack. I'm using it to figure out who to pitch. And after hearing this like a dozen times, I'm like, oh wait, there's probably a business there. Like they're using our website for this like very uh -huh. integral business problem. And we didn't even build our website for that. So we we're like, oh, if we keep all the tools free for journalists, but then mm -hmm. build out a part, especially for PR people and charge mm -hmm. for it, that could be a great business. Great subscription business, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And then from doing um, the Shorty Awards, it's always been profitable profitable and it's been a great business but it was challenging because every year I have to start from zero and we'd sometimes sweat like a, you know we'd have to cover all the costs and that that was always a bit nerve-wracking at the beginning whereas I looked at uh, SaaS, what we now call SaaS businesses uh, software as a service basically mm -hmm. meaning that instead of sending out a disk to somebody to install on their computer mm -hmm. yeah a website they can log into and you charge to use it uh, so I saw these SaaS businesses looked really appealing because so long as you serve your customers well and they don't cancel, you can count on more revenue coming in. Mm -hmm. So that, that made the SaaS model very appealing. And anyhow, so we, we relaunched it back in uh, December 2011 as a SaaS platform. And the rest has been history. We just kept growing it and growing it. Isn't there synergy between the two businesses, would you say? Do you cross leverage or? Yeah, there's some. You know, one is that we have kind of shared services between the two. So uh, we have one accounting team and one human resources team and one office. So that makes it a bit easier. But more than that, you know, broadly, it's in the same kind of ecosystem where the Shorty Awards were honoring, um, uh, you know, we both do honor journalists. We have a category for them. We honor uh, uh, marketers and PR people mm -hmm. for their best campaigns on social media. And then with mm -hmm. Muckrack, we're serving PR people uh, mm -hmm. with our paid product and then journalists with our free product. So definitely kind of gets us in the room with a lot of great people and similar community. And we've leveraged a lot from, from one to the other where we just build a relationship with somebody through one and tell them about the other. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a bit and, and talk about how in building Muckrack, you've defined, uh, defied rather, some of the key Silicon Valley assumptions, one of them being the importance of venture capital for tech startups to grow, and the other, the importance of locating in a tech center such as Silicon Valley. So um, first, venture capital. Um, how have you grown Muckrack without venture capital? Did you ever consider it? Yeah, we, we considered venture capital, but decided not to uh, 
not to raise it. I mean, pretty much bootstrapped up the whole way. We don't have any venture capital or institutional investors. And it's been really empowering uh, for a few different reasons. One is that we could focus totally on the customers. And I've seen it with friends of mine who raise venture capital that once you raise venture capital, uh, first of all, while you're raising, and it usually takes at least three months to raise, even if things are going well, and often six months plus if things are going poorly, or it's just not a hot market you know, due to factors outside of your control, the, the founder or CEO has to spend the vast majority of their time fundraising. And even when they're done fundraising, they then have to spend probably about a third of their time managing their investors. And then the VC model works where they want you to spend the money and grow. And usually after you've raised, you plan to have 12 to 18 months runway, meaning that you, know, you can go 12 to 18 months before you run out of money and need another round of financing. So that means that you know, you're just only going to get a year to build stuff if you're lucky, and then you have to spend all this time. Raising money again. Yeah, exactly, raising money. So, um, so we figured like, hey, what if we just took all that time we would have spent raising money and spent all that time talking to customers and closing more deals? We just thought like, hey, well, we can get, the biz we can get cash from the customers. We get cash from the customers. We don't have to dilute ourselves. Uh, and then it's also kind of germane to the business because that means that what do we have to do to get cash from the customers? We have to build useful features. We have to give great customer service. We have to communicate our message to them. So every time we were thinking like, oh, we want to grow faster. Maybe we could raise money from VCs. We just say, let's go out and raise money from customers. And it has some other effects too, because when you do venture capital, you always have to plan for this super high growth. We've mm -hmm. always grown, grown quickly, but We've never, we, what happens to these VC companies usually is they, they push the growth so fast, they double their staff in six months, or they launch some new uh, initiative they haven't really looked into or don't feel passionate about. And they try that, and then three months later, they have to lay people off. And of course, when you do a layoff, it creates a lot of distraction. I'm really proud. Like, we've never, you know, we haven't grown as fast as some VC backed mm -hmm. companies, but we've also, we've never had to do a layoff. We've never made any, like, huge gut-wrenching mistakes so um i think because of that we've been able to build a lot more carefully and, and there are a lot of things unique to our culture uh, like the other question you brought up mm -hmm. where we've been able to do a lot of things differently than most vc-backed companies would have because we didn't have to convince a bunch of investors that it's okay to do things in this what, what looked like a weird way mm -hmm. and um it sounds as if the way, based on how you describe that, to some extent, VC capital can be a distractor from the primary thing that you need to do, which is address customer needs and build your business organically. Um, now, what about locating in New York City? Why did you say no to Silicon Valley? Why is Muckrack in Soho? There are a few different reasons why we're in New York. One is, even though we're a tech company, it has all to do with media journals and public relations and of course New York is the uh, the hub for that so mm -hmm. you know we're much more plugged into the scene there's also a tremendous amount of new talent that comes to New York every year but if I have to be honest I just yeah love New York I think it's an amazing <laughs> city and uh, mm -hmm. yeah I want to knock Silicon Valley and a lot of people love it out there but but personally New York it's New York City is so much bigger than San Francisco you have so many different industries in New York City. And I think a lot of people miss that, where San Francisco is a company town. 
it's tech, it's tech, it's tech. I Surrounded mean, by techies. That's right. I remember like I'd go out there and I'd go to just friend par parties of friends of mine out there. Everyone's in tech. Here you go to someone's party, you meet a journalist, you meet a writer, you meet someone in fashion, you meet someone in book publishing, you know, and you meet people in tech and people in finance. So in New York, I just found it like so interesting having such a diversity uh, uh, of diversity in all factors, but you know, also diversity of uh, what industries people are in. Mm -hmm. But then I think that makes it really interesting as an entrepreneur because you get to cross pollinate mm -hmm. all these ideas and spot ideas in other industries. Whereas if you're in San Francisco, all you're thinking about is tech. And there's a lot of group think in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. and I love going out there. I go out there several times a year and I, I do find it challenging in many regards. I mean, uh, maybe stimulating is a better word. I talk to them and they definitely know what they're doing. Yeah. And they're very up on tech trends. But they also, when you're in San Francisco, you forget like everybody else doesn't work this way. Like there's still people today who are trying ride sharing for the first time or uh, who are, you know, trying, you know, who don't know what it means to be in a city with scooters all over the place and everything like that. So they're kind of insulated. Yeah, they can be insulated and they take things for granted, kind of not realizing like what the normal people need, what mass market needs. New York, I think, keeps you, uh, keeps you a bit more grounded. Keeps you more current, what's mm. happening and what people need. Um, to what extent is it important for you that your values are reflected in, in what you do as an entrepreneur? I think that's the most important thing. I mean, that's why, I mean, for me, if I wanted to make money, and I think most entrepreneurs, like, I mean, if you want to, if you rationally care about making a lot of money, entrepreneurship risk adjusted is a really bad way to do it because it's so much safer and to be, uh, you know, a banker or a, an attorney or any, any one of these careers where you can probably reliably make lots of money every year of your career without any huge loss. Whereas uh, in the entrepreneurial game, of course, you go and I, you know, I went many years without making, uh, you know, making a lot less money than a lot of my junior employees now because that's what the business needed and everything needed to be reinvested into it. And then there's no guarantee that you're ever going to make money or they're ever going to make a lot of money based on how the business uh, grows. And anyone who's got a large business, you have to think they, they care more about the money because they could have sold that business and been set, but mm -hmm. instead they decide to keep operating it with all the risk and headaches that that entails. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, starting a business is all about uh, creating something new from scratch and then creating something mm -hmm. new from scratch that I, that I believe in and that, that kind of, you know, follows my, my values, my, my vision, and there's something that I can be proud of. So I hear the value of creativity, um, learning, any others that stand out to you? Yeah, it's all that, of course. Another one is being super focused on the, uh, the customer and being customer, uh, you call it being customer devoted, but just that idea that like, mm -hmm. the customer asks us a question, you know, does, mm -hmm. they might ask like, does your software do this? I mean, mm -hmm. if it does, of course, we'll show them how, but Maybe we see like inherent in their question, uh, you know, they really want to know, they're really trying to accomplish something else. And like, can we go out of our way to help them accomplish that? Even if our software doesn't do it, like, can we give them tips on how to get done what they want to get done? And yeah, I try to show it as CEO or like I'll personally go meet with customers all the time, even though we're at a scale where um, I don't need to do any customer support or sales, but I'm always going along and 
you know, even next week, I'm going to Seattle, I'm meeting with a bunch of our customers out there uh, and listening to them, hearing their problems. I'll kind of jump in if people mm -hmm. are posting internally on Slack, how, you know, customers asking, how do we do this? I'll sometimes mm -hmm. throw out ideas there. I'll read through the feedback they have to kind of inform the larger strategy of the company and the product. But I try to just show it myself that like, let's not forget, it's not about, it's not about the CEO, it's not about um, us being this great software, it's about how can we help the customers. And I think that's what, uh, that, that mentality can keep us successful because we have to keep changing the product. The, there's product, the market's always changing. We have to keep, uh, you know, people come and go from the company, although we have very good retention. Uh, but, but, you know, the thing that's constant is if we're focused on the customer, we can see how their needs are changing and keep uh, changing our product before humility, it becomes obsolete. Right. Yeah. And I hear a lot of humility in that, too. It's, it's not about status and prestige and money for you. Mm -hmm. It's about being able to address the need and the satisfaction of creating something. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked about how being an entrepreneur has a certain cachet right now um, in American society, for sure, sort of a zeitgeist of our times. To what extent do you think an entrepreneurial mindset can be learned, or is it something that's just innate? Yeah, th that's always been the, uh, been the debate. I, I think that there's a spectrum of people with, with how much kind of risk they're willing to take and also how passionate they are about their about wanting to create things mm -hmm. so i don't think everybody can be an entrepreneur but i do think that you know within that spectrum there's always been i mean there's the you know maybe there is the couple percent of people who are super entrepreneurial and will do it mm -hmm. hell or high water and there are some people who just want a corporate job and can work nine to five and know if they do mm -hmm. X, they'll get their promotion on Y date. Uh, but I think there are a lot of people in the middle where they're, they lean entrepreneurial, they want to create something, but they never quite uh, had that opportunity to take the leap. And I think that's something that we can all help with by giving people more stories. Like that's why I started the podcast uh, and, and you know what you're doing here, where they hear more entrepreneurs uh, how they did it. And, you know, this, there's always that model, the second you meet an entrepreneur who you think is dumber than you and was successful, that's when you're like, oh, I could do that. You know, or at least no smarter than you. Uh, so, you know, some of it is just seeing like, oh, entrepreneurs are human beings. Maybe I can do it too. Having access to a lot more of the practical resources and the internet's gotten much better about that. Like now, if you want to know how to structure a financing round or how to, um, empower your first salesperson. Mm -hmm. There are lots of blog posts on that. Whereas even 10 years ago, even though the internet existed, there just wasn't a lot of content about that out there. And then I think also giving people more, um, you know, more uh, financial education, because mm -hmm. what I find happens to a lot of people is that to start a company, you do need usually somewhere with all, and even if it doesn't cost a lot to start, if you have a really fancy lifestyle and it exceeds what you're making, it's really hard to uh, hard to start a business. Whereas if you live very frugally and you also, you know, maybe you first need a job or you need to find some other source of income, uh, but you know, your net, your personally cash flow positive, it gives you a lot more breathing room to start up. 
So, and of course, you know, some people are just more fortunate in life for a variety of reasons and some are less, but I think we can all help at least uh, with people where there's an opportunity to, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of optimize their life to be able to take that entrepreneurial risk mm -hmm. versus just having that dream and being stuck working in a corporate job. Mm -hmm. And who inspires you? Yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, people, you know, I mean, a lot of people who I'd interviewed on my podcast were big um, inspirations to me. Uh, I mean, my parents, who were both journalists, inspire me for very uh, different reasons. I've had many, uh, you know, many mentors along the way who've helped me out and given me ideas. Uh, yeah, I also think about historical characters like Ben Franklin, who'd started uh, the post office and I believe the world's first volunteer fire department and uh, newspapers themselves. So I think there's a lot of great sources of inspiration. I always like to think back to like, mm -hmm. I think those sources of inspiration are particularly good to think about when uh, things are going poorly because you always think about these people who've gone on to achieve these great things and most of them have had these really awful moments in their careers. Just remembering like, oh yeah, all these other people bounce back from worse is a powerful all, thing. All these trials and tribulations, drawing from uh, the Steve Jobs story, being fired from your own company, <laughs> seeing how it all was not time wasted, but eventually led to something. And looking across all industries, who do you think are some of the most important innovators of our time? Yeah, in terms of uh, big innovators now, I think, um, I mean, of course, as you mentioned, you know, Steve Jobs' legacy still looms large over all of us. And he, he did so much to push the whole mobile, I mean, so many things in general, the mobile revolution, uh, looking at uh, Bill Gates now with his legacy with um, Gates Foundation, this whole new way. But it's been, it's been interesting watching Microsoft make themselves over where everybody thought they were done for. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've acquired LinkedIn. They've acquired a lot of really GitHub, a lot of cutting edge companies, and uh, as well as, you know, made the Microsoft suite relevant again, and uh, at least competitive with Google's product. So that, that's been really interesting to see. I think also just seeing the way that, uh, you know, Google is going through a lot of trials and tribulations now, but, um, one of the big, uh, one of my big inspirations is this guy, Andy Grove, who is the former, um, he's actually a Hungarian immigrant who uh, escaped both the Holocaust and then uh, the Iron Curtain in the Cold War to come to America as a child and became uh, one of the first employees at Intel and ultimately became their CEO. He wrote a great book called High Output Management that has all these ideas around like doing regular one-on-ones with your direct reports and setting up what are called OKRs, objective key results, to be transparent about company priorities. Uh, and he recently passed away, but then um, Google adopted his uh, OKR system as well as many other uh, companies. And I think that's been fascinating to just see this whole uh, school of really thoughtful, transparent management, mm -hmm. which I think you know, of course, you could argue about the particulars of it, and people are always updating it with technology. But I think just this world we live in now where companies are being more uh, thoughtful about how they build their own systems and how they manage and how they innovate, I think has a, makes a big difference for both the 
happiness of employees and people who work at companies, and also because they can do better work, uh, ultimately for just regular citizens because they get access to better uh, goods and services. Um, top three book recommendations for entrepreneurs. Uh, high output management, as I, uh, as I mentioned, I think okay. Andy Grove wrote a particularly good book and extremely practical book for uh, just knowing how to get things done. Uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. It's an amazing book. Uh, he's the founding CEO, or at least the CEO for the majority of uh, Pixar. Uh, Pixar's history and pretty much was the CEO out, got into movies and ultimately was acquired by Disney. But it's a fascinating book on how even for something like coming up with animated movie or you know, computer animated movie ideas that you have to be extremely deliberate in how the, the management of the companies run to allow for that creativity and create that safety for it. Uh, that one's huge. And then also the, uh, the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson is an amazing uh, read. And you know, Steve Jobs definitely had a, a dark side to him and um, you know, many, many demons that, that drove him too. But just kind of getting that uh, through reading it, this expansive view of how the computer industry grew up and what it was like launching these businesses is a great read. Yeah, and how all of his seemingly unconnected, unrelated experiences um, ended up somehow translated into what he did later. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people go wrong, where they, they, they want to get into business. They look at how people did it before, and they do these super structured paths based on what people have done before. But then you look at the ones who really break out, and they're the ones who you know, bring these different connections together. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs famously, I think he called it like marrying liberal arts and engineering, or that wasn't quite how he put it, but you know, somewhere along those lines, because he, he was big into uh, poetry and meditation. Yeah, calligraphy. The Hare Krishnas, yeah. Uh, you know, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, had an interesting way of putting it, where he was saying that, you know, of course, business, Dilbert's the number one business comic, and he was saying that he was definitely not the best person at drawing comics, mm -hmm. and he wasn't the best business person, but he had the best combination in being able to draw and being a business person. And that's what made Delbert successful. I think there are many uh, opportunities like that in life where it's not that you're, it's really hard to be the best at one thing, but if you've got several mm -hmm. different interests and you pull them together in a unique way, that's often where the opportunity is. So my final question, uh, do you have any words of advice for someone who may be listening or watching who's toying with the idea of an entrepreneurial venture but ambivalent? What would you say to them to help them make the decision? I'd say a few different things. You know, One is um, try to set up your life so that you can take risks. So if you're, um, yeah, that means basically don't commit to spending any more money than you need to spend. If you have a choice between a fancy apartment or a simple apartment, get the simple apartment. Fancy car, cheap car, get the cheap car uh, so that you have some financial wherewithal. But then also, you know, really think through like how big a risk trying the business would take. A lot of people think of you know, the human mind is very risk averse and, and, and you can get uncomfortable with risk so you don't analyze it. So a lot of people think like, 
oh, I could try starting this business, but if it doesn't work, it's a failure. I'm going to be a failure the rest of my career and I'll be bankrupt and on the street. But a lot of times when you actually sit down and you think through what happens if this doesn't work and you do the math, what happens if this doesn't work, maybe you can attempt the business in a way where failure is you lose half your savings, but you still have your other half and you can go back to work and build it back up. Uh, or maybe failure is you just have to go back and apply to a new job in two years. And you know you lost those two years of your career track you were on, but you can start over and maybe that experience of having been an entrepreneur will actually make you more appealing to employers, which I've actually seen happen before. So um, thinking through that worst case, when you actually analyze, you might realize like, hey, the worst case, it's not that bad. So why not just give it a shot? Well, thank you very much, Greg, for being a guest today. Great. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Thank you for tuning in to this installment of Econoclast. I've been interviewing Greg Gallant, CEO and co-founder of Muckrack and CEO and executive producer of the Shorty Awards. This audio is made with Audio Toolkit for Windows Store, downloaded for free now.